So this morning we're going to be looking at the doctrine of our union with Christ and this this doctrine as we're going to see shortly as we work through these various passages really encompasses everything that we've been looking at up to this point uh, regarding the blessings of our salvation. And when, when we think, for example, about justification, adoption, sanctification, as Will taught on last week, glorification, um, all of these are ours because we have been united to Christ. We've been brought into union with Him. And so we want to take some time this morning to explore really just the wonder of this doctrine of what God has done for us in Him. Now, before we get into our union with Christ and for our hearts to truly rejoice in that, we, we want to be reminded of who we were united to by nature. And it's not Jesus, it's Adam. So we want to take some time to think through that so that we can rejoice afresh at what we have been given in Christ. And you'll see that there on your note sheet, our natural union. By nature, all of humanity is in union with Adam. By nature, Adam is the covenant head or the representative of every person who has ever lived, is living, or ever will live except the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, because Adam represented us, his sin, when we go back to Genesis 3 and we see that rebellion against God, that, that sin, that rebellion against him was imputed or counted to all of his offspring, which again is every person. Uh, I like the way that the, uh, our confession states this, the London Baptist Confession. It states this, they, referring to Adam and Eve, being the root and by God's appointment, standing in the room instead of all mankind, the guilt of the sin was imputed and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation, being now conceived in sin and by nature children of wrath, the servants of sin, the subjects of death, and all other miseries spiritual, temporal, and eternal, unless the Lord Jesus set them free. Uh, so I think that's very well stated um, in our, our confession. And I, I love that first line there, they being the root, right? So when, when you think about each person, they're not, so to speak, this little individual tree that's springing forth from the soil of life, so to speak, right? They're, they're an extension of that root, of, of Adam and Eve, connected to him, all of us connected in that way, all going back to our first parents. And the reason this is stated in the confession is because the scriptures make this concept explicitly clear. This is what makes the gospel so powerful, that no matter where you go in the world, every person you meet is by nature a descendant of Adam, is in union with Adam. That's why the gospel's relevant and needed in every place on earth. Paul says it this way in Acts 17, 26, and he, that is God, 
made from one man, every nation of mankind, to live on all the face of the earth. So this, this union is universal. And therefore, the results or the consequences of this union are also universal. That is, that every person is condemned in Adam. And Romans 5 makes this probably the clearest of all. And I want you to notice here the parts that I've highlighted here. Notice our union with Adam. It says, sin came into the world through one man. And death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Going down to verse 16, the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. One trespass led to condemnation for all men. And then this last part, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So again, you see that union that we have with Adam, the effect of Adam's rebellion here. So this passage makes very clear this representative nature and consequences of Adam's rebellion for all of his offspring. There are a couple other passages that I want to refer to that make this clear in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, and then also in verse 49. In Adam, and when you see that, that phrase, in Adam, just like when you see that phrase, in Christ, that means in union with. Okay, so those who are in union with Adam die. Okay, and then in verse 49, we by nature, this is speaking of, we have borne the image of the man of dust. Okay, because of our union with Adam, we are condemned by virtue of that union. Now, I wanted to give that backdrop not to depress you, but so that we can see how beautiful and glorious this union is that we have with Christ. So I want to look at a few things regarding this union that we have with Christ. There on your note sheet, you'll see that. First is the foundation of this union. And when we think about the foundation of our union with Christ, we want to make sure that we don't think about it in such a way that after the fall, God had to come up with a plan for humanity. Right? This, this concept of union with Christ was in the mind of God, was a plan that originated in eternity past. Now, what we see the scriptures teaching us is that this foundation of this union is expressed in the decree of election. Okay, so we see this in Ephesians chapter 1. If somebody can read that for us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Okay, so notice again, when he did this, even as he chose us, and then notice this, in him. 
Okay, so that's what it's referring to, to be in union with, right? He chose us to be in union with Christ before the foundation of the world. Okay, so again, this was the, the mindset of God to bring us into that union with his son. Now, not only did God plan our union with Christ before the foundation of the world, Amazingly, he fulfilled all the holy requirements that are necessary to be in union with him. And how he did this is namely through the word, that is, Jesus becoming flesh. So Jesus became a man in order to save men, in order to take us out of union with Adam and to bring us into union with himself. I'm going to talk about that a little bit this morning uh, when we have a baptism at the end of the service, and I'll, I'll hit a little bit on that when I talk about baptism. But, but this is the reality of what God has done, that Jesus comes as a man to take us out of union with that first man and to bring us into union with himself. The first Adam failed, right? Through his disobedience, to secure for us an unchangeable status of righteousness in the presence of God. Right? Adam was not able to, to do that. He failed that test, so to speak. But where the first Adam failed, what the scriptures teach us is that the second Adam, the Lord Jesus, succeeded. And we see this when we go back to Romans 5 here. If you're familiar with Romans 5, you know that I just picked a few verses out to show how Adam was representing us, but the, the context of Romans 5 there is to show the greatness of Christ and his superiority in accomplishing what the first Adam could not. So Romans 5.15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many have died through one man's trespass, referring to Adam, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man. Jesus Christ abounded for many. Okay, so there you have the representative nature that's being spoken of. Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. And then in verses 17 through 19 here, it says, For if, because of one man's trespass, Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. What a great line that is, isn't it? The free gift of righteousness. I, I can't be righteous in the sight of God on my own. And God says, it's a free gift to you through the work of my son. That's amazing. The free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life. For all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Notice this. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Hallelujah. That's just such a great statement. So Adam fails to walk in complete obedience to God. And the punishment for that is separation from God, and in the midst of that punishment, he provides the promise of the gospel that we see in Genesis 3, that there's going to be a seed of the woman that comes to crush 
the seed of the serpent, the head of the serpent. And so then you have the Lord Jesus show up and he walks in complete obedience to his father's will and in so doing secures the righteousness for all those that are in him. So Jesus humbles himself, becomes a man, and assumes fellowship with us. Hebrews chapter 2 hits on this in a, just a, a lovely way. If I can get somebody to read that for us. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that, the might be, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Okay. Thanks, Mac. Uh, going back here, the, the necessity of our Lord Jesus to take on flesh and blood is seen in that first verse there. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. And then notice this, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. Right? So, so death seems like it's a finality here. The Lord Jesus is dying, right? The disciples are like, this should not be happening. This isn't what we envisioned was going to happen here. But this was the necessity of it, that through death he would destroy the one who has the power of death and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And you see that, that, uh, that fear in every person, right? Every person in some way is is fighting to preserve their life. Now, there are people that think that it, this life is too much, that I'm going to end it, and even that they're trying to escape it to get to something better. So this reality is seen for every person having that fear. I don't want to die, right, is the echo of the human heart. And it, it's amazing, like, I think it just becomes more clear to me with having a, a you know, a young daughter and just hearing her sit like say these things daddy i don't want to die right just even from that age you know this this expression of this fear i don't want to die um and and so the lord jesus comes and he brings us into union with himself and as pastor jack will preach on next week on resurrection day out of john 11 where jesus gives that promise he who believes in me though he dies yet shall he live Right? That's, the, that's the promise of the gospel. And so this is, this is the foundation of the union that we have, that God has ordained that we would be in union with Christ and fulfills all the requirements necessary for us to be brought into that union with him. And the scripture uses different analogies. You'll see this on your note sheet, different analogies to describe this union that we have uh, there are four of them that I, I want to mention here. First, this, this analogy is described by Jesus regarding the vine 
and the branches. If somebody would read this for us, please. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Okay, so you have that aspect of... Jesus as the vine and we are the branches, right? So we're not just independent doing our own thing here. We're connected, our life source is being in union with Christ. Okay. Another way that it's described by Peter here in 1 Peter 2 verses 4 through 6 is by the cornerstone of a building and all the stones that are built upon that building or that cornerstone. If somebody would Read that for us. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Okay, so there the Lord Jesus being referred to as the cornerstone of the building, and we are these living stones that are being added to this, to this building, right? We're in union with him in this way. Another way it's referred to is as the head and members of the body. So Ephesians 4, 15 and 16 says, Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him, who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Okay, so there's another analogy that scripture uses. The Lord Jesus Christ is the head. We are members of his body. We're in union with him. And then the last way that I'm going to refer to here, also in Ephesians, referring to a husband and wife, the union that a husband and a wife have. Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. Somebody want to read that for us? Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Okay, good. So that aspect of two becoming one flesh. Paul says this is a mystery. It's profound. It refers to Christ and the church. Okay, so just as a husband and wife come together and are considered one flesh in the sight of God, so Christ and his church are considered one in the sight of God. Now, what all these analogies show us is the nature of this union, which is the next point there on your outline, that we have with Christ. But it's important to note that they're only partial analogies because they don't describe the greatness of this union and all that it encompasses. In other words, while all the analogies that we see are true, the true union that we have with Christ transcends all of those analogies. Uh, for example, when we take this one out of Ephesians 5 and we think about the union between a husband and a wife, the scripture tells us that the two are one and that this human covenant is a picture of 
of the reality which exists between Christ and his church. However, we don't want to take that too far because we recognize that in a human marriage, there is separation when a spouse dies, right? One spouse dies, the other goes on living. The the status of the one does not necessarily affect the status of the other. That union, that covenant, ends at that point, which is why typically you'll hear, till death do us part, at the end of a, a marriage ceremony. So it's, it's like the union that we have with Christ, but it's also unlike it in the sense that it goes on forever, the union that we have with Christ. It doesn't ever end. It's an eternal union. It's an eternal covenant, not a temporary one, which all human marriages point to. So it's a picture. It reflects it. But the union that we have with Christ is greater than all of those pictures that we see. The union that we have with Christ transcends all of those. So we can get an idea of what that union ought to look like, but we understand that it goes beyond that union that we, that we see. So it's greater than all of, those, all of those analogies that we have just looked at. Now, when we think about the nature of this union and how it's described for us, there's just a few things that I want to bring out here um, before we conclude to help us just, again, to see the, the greatness of this union. First, this union that we have with Christ is a legal union. It determines our legal status on the same basis as Christ's. Just as Adam's sin was imputed to us and we were therefore condemned along with him before God, and this is the point that Paul's making in Romans 5, so also Christ's righteousness is imputed to us and we are therefore counted righteous in the sight of God just as he is. So when people get to Romans 5 and they really, they, they stumble over the union with Adam, it's like you're, you're going to miss the point of what Paul is saying here, right? If, if you just try to pull back on this and just, I'm not accepting that at all, you just strip the gospel, right? You just take, take away from the gospel that how is this fair that this one man's sin is counted to me, right? Well, now you got to earn a righteousness on your own. Can you do that? Right? Because how is this? This man's righteousness is counted to you. You're not arguing about that. <laughs> you know, it's like, no, that's good. I like that. Yeah, I'll take that. Right? And this is the way that the Lord has ordained it. But this is the, this is the legal declaration that is made about us. As the Father sees the righteousness of his Son, he sees his people in the same way because of their union with him. Right? That's, that's mind-boggling. It's incredible to think about. I I love this passage in John 8, which you've probably heard me refer to before. Kind of an obscure passage maybe, but one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture because of what it tells me, or later on in the Scripture, what I see about the righteousness of Christ. So Jesus says this, And he who sent me, the Father, 
is with me. He has not left me alone. And then notice this. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Nobody else in all of human history can make that statement. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And what's amazing as we think about the union that we have with Christ is that declaration is over us, not necessarily on a practical daily basis, right? We sin and we need to confess that and turn away, but that positional righteousness where God declares us righteous in his sight is what is over us as the people of God. This is the legal status that we have in the sight of God. Just as we were guilty in, in Adam, so now we are righteous in Christ. That one man's obedience is accounted to us, just as that one man's disobedience was accounted to us. So this union is a legal union. We have that declaration of righteous over us. Secondly, it's also a spiritual union, which is to say that the one who brings us into this union is the Holy Spirit who dwells and works in us, right? And we don't see ourselves physically connected to the Lord Jesus Christ, right? We don't see that, but our spirit is one with the Lord. Look at these passages here that we see. 1 Corinthians 6.17, if you remember the context of this passage, Paul is telling the Corinthians, don't engage in sexual immorality, right? Don't, don't engage with a prostitute, right? Because you're one with the Lord. You don't join yourself. Whoever you join yourself with, that's whose you are. And he says, but you're the Lord's. And so he says here, he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Again, it hits on the union that we have with Christ. And then over in 1 John, there's a couple passages here. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Okay, so you have that aspect again of abiding of remaining, of being in union with. And then a little later on here in 1 John 4.13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Now, now it's interesting here when we go back to uh, chapter 3, verse 24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So the spirit leads us, the Holy Spirit leads us in holiness, in righteousness. We walk in that manner of life. And that's the assurance we have that we've been united to Christ, right? So scripture is telling us, if there's no change in your life, if there's no bent now toward holiness, if there's no longing for that, don't deceive yourself into thinking that you've been united to Christ. You're still in union with Adam if there hasn't been any change in your life. Not that that change in your life is the ground or the basis of your righteousness before God, but it's the evidence of it. So the assurance that we have that we are truly in union with Christ is the work and the testimony of the Spirit within us. When we sin, he causes us to 
repent and to turn away from that sin, to wrestle and fight against that sin, not to be at peace with it. And then lastly, last thing I want to mention here is that this union is an imperishable union. It's an imperishable union. It will never be broken. Here's what Jesus says. I give them, his, his sheep he's referring to in this chapter, I give them eternal life. And then notice this. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. That's the declaration that we have as the people of God. When you were united to Christ, you died with him. You were buried with him, and you were raised with him. Now, you're going to experience the fullness of that on the last day. But that is the reality, that though you may die physically, you're never going to perish. You will go from this right into the presence of the Lord to be with him forever. And then coming back on that glorious day with a resurrected body at the consummation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what Jesus says in John 6, 37 and 39. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, watch this, I will never cast out. How encouraging is that? I will never cast out. If God has brought you into union with Christ, it's impossible to ever be back in union with Adam. And Jesus says, going on here in verse 39, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. That's the encouragement that we have and the greatness of this union. And then one final passage here in Romans 8, verses 35 and 38 and 39, if somebody can read that for us. Amen. I, I don't think you can get much more clear than that regarding the imperishable nature of our union, right? What's going to separate us from him? And Paul just lists all these things, everything he can think of and that he's inspired to, to say here. And, you know, you could look at this, and when you think about, like Mike shared at the beginning when we were praying for our persecuted brothers and sisters you know, the, the, the sword at my neck might cause me to think that I could be separated from Christ. And yet, the scriptures say, none of this. Let's think through it. Is, can tribulation do that? How about distress? Can distress do that? Persecution? 
How about famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Any of those things? And then he goes on, nope, neither death nor life, right? I'm a little uncertain about the future, though. What if something in the future can, can do that, can separate me? Nor things present, nor things to come. Man, there's some great powers in this world. Nor powers, height, depth, anything, just in case I didn't cover it all, anything else in all creation <laughs> will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's the union that we have been brought into. And you can see how an understanding of that union, when you look back at the, the missionary endeavors, how that frees people to go and preach the gospel to all creation. Death is not going to separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I'm just going to go right into the middle of this war zone where people hate Christians and preach the gospel to them. Because if they do kill me, it doesn't separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It ushers me into his presence until I wait until that glorious day where he resurrects my body and unites it with my soul and I'm with him in the new heavens and the new earth for all of eternity. So this, this, this doctrine is not something that we should just look at from a theological perspective and say, I, I kind of get that, right? I get that. It should have massive implication upon our life. And the joy that ought to arise, even in the midst of great trial and sorrow, this, this joy that should be welling up in our hearts because of what God has done for us in Christ. I'm never going to be back in union with Adam. I am eternally united to Christ. That is the ground or the foundation of our assurance before God. And Will is going to speak on that assurance next week. Okay, I've purposely finished up a few minutes early. Um, let me see if first there's any questions, and then if not, I just have a little assignment for you that'll take a few minutes. Any, uh, any questions or comments? Okay. Let, me, let me pray, and then I'll tell you what we're going to do for a few minutes, okay? Father, thank you so much for this time together to study your word and Father, as we think again about our union with Adam that all of us have by nature, uh, Lord, we, we recognize that we're worthy recipients of your wrath because of our rebellion against you. And how thankful we are, Father, that these blessings have come to us of justification and adoption and sanctification and glorification and all the other blessings that are with it, Lord, because in your great mercy you chose before the foundation of the world at a certain point in time to bring us out of union with Adam and to bring us into union with the last Adam, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we thank you, we praise you for this and how we pray that these truths truly would manifest themselves in joyful obedience obedient, sacrificial lives that are confident that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Please help us to live in light of that reality. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.